Well, good morning. It's great to be back to Milton Bible Church Online. I wanted to let you know what happened last week, our very first Sunday uh, back at the Connect Center. We had an absolutely spectacular time. People visiting, people singing, people clapping, people laughing. It was just a super time to be together. But I do want to tell you this. There were a few empty seats, so we do have room for more. So make sure you register, make sure you come, and uh, we'll look forward to celebrating God together again. You know, I wasn't really sure how many people would return to live Sunday morning church because a number of churches across Ontario, at least that I know, are really struggling with this thing. In fact, many churches have had a very poor return of people coming back to live church. Now, we did very, very well and uh, exceeded our expectations and, and just an absolute great morning. But uh, many pastors are really fearful. In fact, one pastor of a very large church said to me about a month ago, he said, you know, when COVID-19 struck and the churches were closed down, I really believed God was going to do something very special across the world. He said, now five months in, he said, I'm actually worried about the church. I'm worried that Christians have become too comfortable, too complacent, and I'm actually fearful about the future of the church. Let me ask you something. Is the church in Canada or even worldwide in danger? Do you think the church is losing its edge? Let me ask you, have the fires and your love for God begun to wane? And if that is the case, can those fires be revived? Can the passion for the mission of the church that Jesus gave us, can that be revived and made new again? Can we recapture our mission and our vision? But are we in danger of losing momentum and losing sight of the vision that God has given us at Milton Bible Church? We have a little tagline at NBC. It's making disciples, transforming lives. That is the purpose for which we believe God has called us, to see men and women, boys and girls, teenagers, receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, begin to walk in the fullness and the beauty and the splendor of the love of God, and to, see, and to begin to see their lives changed and transformed so that they grow into the full and complete image of Jesus himself. That's our desire. That's our mission. Make disciples, lives transformed, individuals, families in our community. That's the mission of God that he has given to us. And that is the passion for which we live. What, but what happens when an organization or a church begins to lose its sense of mission? What happens? Well, I'll tell you, someone needs to confront that church. Someone needs to confront that organization. And that's exactly what Jesus does when he writes the letter to the church in Sardis. Sardis, from the outside, it looked vibrant and alive. But the truth was, it was comatose. And what Jesus does is he calls them and he says, wake up and strengthen the things that remain because I want you to start moving forward again and get revitalized. 
And so that is the call upon the church. Renewal, revitalization, moving forward in the mission of God. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for the call that you have upon the life of the church, that you have called us to purpose, you have called us to mission, you have called us to move the gospel of Jesus forward. And we know that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we are so thankful, Lord, that uh, there is no possible way that we can lose uh, this, this war, or this battle. And so we thank you that with you all things are possible. So we pray, Lord, as we continue our study in the letters to the seven churches, we pray for, for you to teach us from your word and give us lessons that will change our hearts for your glory. Amen. Amen. All right. So how do we revive the church? What does Jesus say to this church that is going to bring revival and renewal to the call of mission in the life of the people of this church? Well, Jesus is going to say three things. And the first thing we're going to look at is in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And what Jesus does is he knows what's behind our reputation. That's the first thing we see, is that Jesus knows what's behind our reputation. This is what it says in verses one and two. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now it's interesting to note that in this Beginning to this church in Sardis, there is no praise. There is no commendation. There is no at a go, you're doing great in this area. Well done. Do you know in all of the letters to the seven churches, there are a number of things that happen, seven different things that happen in each letter. Uh, the, first of all, there's the, the order uh, that Jesus gives to the apostle John, write this to you know, this church. And then there's a description of Jesus, and then there's usually a commendation, and then after that, possibly a rebuke, and then a reward, and then you know, sums it up with, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But only here, only here in this church that is Sardis do we find there is no commendation. There is no well done. There is no you got this right, but you need to, you know, just, you know, make some improvements or changes or, or drastic, take drastic measures there. No positive words whatsoever. Incredibly unusual. This is the only church with only rebuke given to it. And Jesus describes himself this way. He says, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now understand this. Again, this is apocalyptic literature. It is figurative language. That is the normal use of speech. We don't have to do anything weird or wacky with it. This is, uh, we just take the normal use of speech and we apply it to the book of Revelation in how it is written as literature. So the number seven is the number of wholeness, the number of completeness, the number of fullness. So when Jesus says, behold, you know, I hold, I hold the seven spirits and the seven stars. The seven represents wholeness, like we said. So what he's saying is, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, um, Jesus holds the fullness of the Spirit. 
the fullness, the complete spirit, the, the total spirit. And he says the same thing for the churches, the seven stars. We know that the stars are the churches because Revelation 1 tells us that. And, and uh, so what Jesus does, he says, I hold the whole church, not just Sardis, and not just Milton Bible Church, but I hold all the churches together. And that's how he begins. This is important as we work our way through this letter, that the fullness of the Spirit and the fullness of the churches are in the hands of Jesus. And then he says this, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. How would you like that for a greeting? Hey, Bob, good to meet you. I heard you're a pretty live wire, but truth is I can see that, you know, you're pretty much dead, a deadbeat. You're pretty much de dead meat. There really isn't anything going on in you, through you, around you. In fact, you don't have much of a life whatsoever. Now, Jesus is saying these things because it's a shocking statement. And he wants the church to be shocked. You have a reputation for this, but the truth is, you're not alive, you're dead. That's how he begins. It's a shocking statement. It's a slap across the face. It is, it is a call that, that is going to shake things up inside. And that is the entire purpose of why Jesus says it this way. You know what he's trying to do? He's trying to bring a defibrillator to a corpse. And he's saying, boom, come on, get some life back into you. You look like you're alive, but you're not. Boom, let's get going. It's a shocking statement for a shocking situation. I'll never forget the first time I uh, came across or I kind of met my first corpse. And it was in the city of London. I was a young pastor in my 20s. And um, uh, someone came to me. His name was Reg. He said, hey, will you go visit my brother in hospital? So I said, oh, of course, Reg, I'll do that. I'll be there Tuesday at 11. So he said, okay, I'll meet you there. So I go up to the hospital, University Hospital, Tuesday at 11, walk up to the room that uh, Frank, Reg's brother, was in, and the door was closed. Now, I really respect closed doors in hospitals. I knocked on the door. You never know what's going on inside. Nothing happened. Turn around, and there's Reg walking down the hall. He's a little bit late. And he says to me, oh, he says, Jim, he says, you know what? Um, uh, my, my brother uh, just passed away an hour ago. And so we're just waiting for the body to be collected. So we began to, to speak in the hallway. He says, listen, come on in and meet my brother, Frank. So we walk in the hospital uh, uh, room. And what happens is we walk in the hospital room, walk up to the body. And, it's, and Frank's his head is resting on a pillow. His knee is kind of upright in a position like that. Reg takes off his hat, puts it on Frank's knee and says, Jim, here, uh, here's my brother, Frank. Awkward. I don't feel comfortable in hospitals to begin with. I'm beginning to squirm. I don't know what to say. So I said, you know, Reg, tell me about your brother, Frank. So we began to have a great conversation. I became more comfortable as the moments went by. We had a time of prayer. We left. And it was a good thing, a very unusual thing. And Jesus says, listen, Sardis, you have a reputation, but I know the truth. 
There's barely a pulse left in your spiritual life. Now, the interesting thing about Sardis and the letter to the church there is that there's no persecution mentioned. There's no opposition. There's no suffering. There's no Caesar worship where people are called into a place of conflict or compromising their Christian conscience. No oppression or troubles. In fact, everybody is happy. What this church has done is they've perfected the art of non-offensive Christianity. No one is a sinner and no one really needs a savior. Do you know what? We love the gospel of grace, the gospel of grace. But the Bible also says the gospel is a stumbling block and it can be an offensive message. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, the apostle Paul writes, the church at Corinth, and he says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Then he goes on to say, For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And what Paul is saying, and I run into people like this all the time, you know, it says that one group seeks a sign and the other group seeks a logical argument. One say, listen, show me a sign, show me a miracle, show me some magic, that Jesus can do and then I'm going to believe in you another group very different says show me a logical argument show me a series of propositional truths that can make sense to me in such a way that I will be convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that Christ is real and the savior of mankind and the truth is if that is the starting uh, place of where you're coming from you know God can meet you there absolutely And God does, and God will meet you there if you're open to meet with him. But the the truth is also, for those of us who were once, hey, show me a magic trick or show me a logical argument, you know, that, that is that in order that I must be convinced, once we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, both of those groups know that the gospel is the power of God and it is the wisdom of God. And it's an absolutely magnificent thing. In Romans, it says that we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves so that no one can boast. And the grace of God is the unmerited favor of God. It is the unconditional love of God. It is the love of God that we do not deserve. And we make much of grace and we love grace. And grace is an absolutely essential, a part of the Christian faith. Nothing that we've done Only the love of God as God works in our hearts. But there was a day when we had to recognize that we bring nothing to God. And before we met Jesus, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we had to acknowledge that there was only one name under heaven whereby we could be saved. And so we confessed with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in our heart that God has raised him from the dead. And the scripture says, you will be saved. And the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God came in to dwell within us, did a renewing work in our lives and hearts and saved us and made us children of the living God. Absolutely incredible. Nothing of us, All of him. But you know what? 
the truth is not everyone is going to love that message. And if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior or you want to take your first step in the Christian life, that is the place to start. With, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You bring nothing to the game. He brings everything to the front and does everything for us. And he has done it all on the cross. And for some people, that's just going to be utter foolishness. Utter, utter, utter silliness. Just a, a stupid message that they're saying, that they're going to say, you know, that's the most bizarre thing I've ever heard in my life. And that will be the reaction of some. Absolutely. And Jesus said, listen, I want you to understand that I hold the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Why was the Spirit of God given to the church? The Spirit of God was given to the church to empower the church for witness, both in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The Spirit makes us alive in God. The Spirit is the presence of Jesus within us. The Spirit gives us supernatural gifts to serve one another and build the church the Holy Spirit enables the Christian life by indwelling individual believers to give them that power that they need to live a life that is faithful and holy before a righteous God. The Holy Spirit acts as a comforter, a paraclete, a friend, a wise counselor, one who intercedes before the Father, who supports or acts as an advocate, particularly in times of trial. You see, the Spirit makes us alive. These folks were dead. They looked alive, but they were dead. And what Jesus is saying, look at church, the church that I hold in my hand and I'm about to come and deal with this, I also have the fullness of the Spirit available for you, available for new life in Christ. And for those of you who've, who's received, who've received Christ as Savior, you know, when you see those changes in your own life, recognize them as the work of the Spirit in you. To rekindle uh, uh, something that maybe has, has never been lit before, uh, but, to, but to, to enter into a new life in Christ. You see, what Jesus is doing is he's giving a very high challenge. He's saying, here, church, the challenge for you guys is up here. It's an incredibly high challenge. And the comfort of the challenge is this. Jesus is far more concerned about what is happening on the inside of you than the way you look on the outside. The comfort of the challenge is God is more interested in your heart in your mind, in your soul, in what is happening within your spirit and within you than what people see on the outside and what people, you know, see maybe what we're trying to project. But God says, listen, I am so much more interested in what's happening on the inside. That's the comfort of this challenge. And listen, man, you are worth it. You are worth it. And no matter how far you have wandered from God or no matter how far you have lost your passion or life or our pursuit of him, no matter if you are dying or you are mostly dead or you feel you are a complete corpse, there is hope for you. And that's why Jesus writes this. So the second thing Jesus does 
is he warns those who don't wake up. And in verses 2 and 3, he says this. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. And if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now, this is not usual language for Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, you know, hey, I will come against my church. I mean, that is incredibly unusual language for the Lord. And what he does, he gives them five imperatives. Five imperatives for the church to take action. And these are the five. Wake up, strengthen what remains, remember what you've received, keep it, and repent. The first two, uh, the first two are uh, wake up and strengthen what remains. And what Jesus is doing is, as I said before, he's trying, he's, it's like he is applying a defibrillator to a dead body, someone who's, you know, just passed away. And the defibrillator goes on and someone yells out, clear, and boom, wake up, get up, get moving. If you're lying there all the time, you'll grow weak and weaker and weaker. So what you need to do is you need to get up and you need to gain strength again. Get going. That's what the first two imperatives do. The second two, strengthen what remains, or sorry, remember uh, what you've received and keep it. Remember what you've received and keep it. Remember what you've had and keep the things you know, that you once were or once done. Now, you have to understand that Sardis is a city in decline. It is a city that is trying to restore its reputation, but it's not there yet. In fact, the truth is, they never got it done. It was incomplete, just like the church. The church that had lost its mission, the city that had lost its luster, it was incomplete, so it was a church that was no longer speaking the truth in love. Do you know what? Truth must be spoken boldly, but humbly and with grace. Not an arrogant proclamation, but a, but a, but a uh, confident voice that says, listen, man, I have found it. I have found the pearl of great price in the field. I have sold everything that I have in order to gain it. And guess what? It is worth it. That's the proclamation of the value of the kingdom of God. Those are the kind of disciples that we want to build. Let me ask you a question. Can you build church without making disciples? Can you build church without making disciples? The answer is no. You must make disciples. So he says, remember. Remember how you used to do this. Remember how things were and keep them. And then lastly, fifth imperative, he says repent. A change of mind and direction. A change of mind and direction. Now I want to show you a picture. It's going to come up on the slide. It's a picture of the temple of Artemis that is found in Sardis today. And the temple of Artemis was actually built in the time of Alexander the Great around 300 B.C., and then in 200 AD, 500 years later, the Romans uh, made some renovations and they changed things um, because the temple was not yet complete. And then in 400 AD, 
history records that the temple was still not finished. In fact, by the fourth century, a group of Christians had kind of seized or moved in to one part of the temple. And today we have um, crosses and things on the wall, things in the, the, the marble that show there was a Christian church present there at that time. And, um, but here's the deal. 700 years passed and they never got the temple done. It is the longest renovation in the history of Asia Minor. My wife thinks I'm slow in doing renovations and work around the house. But this 700 years later, it is still not finished. It is still incomplete. So when Jesus says, listen, I know your rep. I know what people say about you, but you know what? You're, you're not, it is, your work is not complete. They knew what it was to be involved in a great work. But that great work was yet unfinished amongst them. And at one time, these people had been faithful in their works, but all that lie in the past. And Jesus is calling them to return to their former life of faithfulness, to finish the work that God had called them to complete. So let me ask you something. Has there been left anything unfinished in your life that God is calling you to complete? Has God put a dream in your heart and somehow over the years or over the weeks or over the months, that dream has slowly seeped away? Or perhaps you were well on your way to doing something and and maybe, you know, something for God that God had called you to. And perhaps you've just taken a sidebar off to one way or another, and you've, there's this incomplete renovation project ministry that is, is not done yet. God has given you gifts. He gave you a dream. He gave you passion. And he said, supernaturally, I will be with you as we build this together. You know, for some who are listening, God is not done with you yet. You may think I'm too old, or I don't have the energy I once had, or the passion just isn't there, or I just wondered if, you know, I still have those gifts and abilities. You know, I'll tell you, there are things of the kingdom that the king needs you to do. So don't quit, and don't give up. The third thing, we'll close with this is that Jesus promises that he will walk with the worthy. In verses four to six, it says this, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this is a threefold promise, threefold promise that Jesus gives. First one is this they will walk with me in white. White is a picture of purity, it's a picture of holiness. And Jesus says, Listen, for those who are faithful, for those who will be revitalized, there's a future waiting for them, not just uh, now, but in heaven, an eschatological future. And they will walk with me in the fullness of purity and holiness and I will walk with them and we will do this together. 
Second promise is I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Well, let me ask you, does that mean you can get your name blotted out of the book of life? Is that what Jesus is saying? You see, the book of life appears five times in Revelation. And it, in it are recorded all the names of the believers um, before the foundation of the world. There are also other books that record the sins of unbelievers and they provide the basis of eternal judgment. In fact, in the book of Daniel, Daniel the prophet, there are mentioned both books of the saved and the unsaved. And when Jesus says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life, he's not saying that there's, an, there's a chance that your name might get erased. In fact, what he's saying is completely the opposite. He is saying for those, uh, those who <clears throat> are, walk with me in, in white, your name, there's not a hope that it will be erased. There's not a hope that it will be blotted out. In fact, what he's saying, it will never be blotted out from the book of life. That's what Jesus is saying. This is a, is a statement of great assurance that those who are faithful and they live for Christ and, and they, they, they give their life for the, for the kingdom and they continue to live fully for him. For those people... There is an eternity secure. And Jesus is giving his assurance of that. The third promise is I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So Bob walks up. Jesus says, Dad, I want to introduce you to Bob. Hey, you angels over there, can you stop talking for a minute? There's a guy over here that you really need to meet. And his name is Bob. And I want to, he's, he's one of mine. And uh, we've walked together. And he's from Sardis. And he's just the greatest guy. And he's got a friend over there. He's from Milton. And I want you to meet him as well. And Jesus says, listen, I will confess you before my father and before the angels who are in heaven. What a promise. See, the purpose of the letter to the church of Sardis is to shake up and wake up a church that was in imminent danger of spiritual death. They looked good on the outside, but on the inside they were dead. Many were already spiritually dead, others were mostly dead, but a lot of them were in great danger. And when that happens, <clears throat> even though the church may have a great history and a great reputation, it's what's inside that is happening that really counts with Jesus. So Christ comes to them, and he says, hey, man, you are in so much danger, so much peril. Wake up. Strengthen the things that remain. Come on. Let's get going. Let's get strong again. Let's get moving again. Let me get, whoop. Well, I think we're losing this one. Get the defibrillator over here. You know, boom. Come on. That's what Christ is saying to this church. So let me ask you a question. Do you see any apathy in your life? Do you see that you are in any kind of place of spiritual danger? Has lethargy set in? Are you just really, you know, so comfortable? Uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, people have said about coming back to churches are going to really mess, miss um, doing church in their pajamas with the coffee. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I can understand that. That makes sense. Um, but we don't want to get too comfortable, do we? 
God really hasn't called us to a life of comfort. And so what I want to do is, as it's safe to return, make sure that we're not putting excuses. And I'm saying this with lots of love. You know, let's make sure that we are moving forward with God, with pure hearts, for one another and for him, for the cause of the kingdom, for the mission of God in our lives. So let me ask you, church, who do you want to be? More importantly, what has God called you to be? You see, I really believe that in this time of COVID-19, God has shaken up the world. And he has shaken up the church. And he wants to do things that he has never done before. I am so excited for the future because I think we are going to have to make adjustments. We are going to do things in a new way. We are going to do uh, things that we've never done before in a way we've never done before. But you know what? I really believe with all my heart, God is saying, come on, church. I'm going to walk with you. You know, when, he, when Jesus says, you know, I hold the, the, the seven spirits and I hold the seven stars, what he's saying is, listen, I've got the fullness of the spirit and I've got the fullness in the whole church. And this is what needs to happen. They need to come together and be revitalized. In the name of Jesus, in the power of the living God. So I'll tell you, I'm excited about the future. I really am. I think we all needed a shakeup. And I think God will use that for his glory. And I believe God will use you in greater ways, in greater, uh, uh, in greater measures than he has ever done before. And I am so excited about what he will do. So come on, church. Let's be the church on mission that God has called us to for his glory and for his glory alone. God bless you. Have a great week. And I look forward uh, to spending time together again. Amen.